Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, hi, my name is Maddie Clevenger, and I... (laughs) Hello! (laughs) Um, And I am on staff here with Chi Alpha. If I have not had the joy of meeting you, hi. Uh, A few things that you should know about me. I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia. Shout out 757. Hey. Yes, let's go. Um, I also am a fellow who. I graduated from UVA in 2020. Tough. Um, But I studied kinesiology and religious studies while I was here. Where we at? love it. Um, And I was once a student in Chi Alpha and sat in your very seats. And so this ministry is very dear to me, and it's honestly a little surreal to be up here tonight. But as we begin our time together tonight, there's something else that you should know about me. Um, Growing up, I loved one toy more than any other that I received, and that was my Nintendo DSi. Does anyone know? Oh, let's go. <laughs> that was honestly not the reaction I was expecting. I thought that might date me a little bit. Um, but yes, the Nintendo DSi came out in April of 2009. At the time, I was in sixth grade. Uh, I was about 11 years old. And this thing caught my attention because not only was it a device where you could play your games, it could do this revolutionary thing called take photos. (laughs) I could have a device that would take photos wherever I went. And so as Christmas of 2009 approached, my brother and I whispered our dreams to our parents and hoped that my memo would deliver. And so I don't know about you guys, but my family is one of those that we don't open presents first thing in the morning. We never did that wait on the stairs thing. We always waited until the whole family had arrived. And sometimes this meant even waiting until after dinner when my dad would get home from work. And Christmas 2009 was one of those Christmases. And so as the family lingered around the table eating dessert and telling jokes, my brother and I were getting antsy. We just wanted to move to the presents. And finally, my family started transitioning, and things were going well. My mom got that new book she wanted. My dad got new pajamas. Nana got her bird seed. All was good. (laughs) And then my dad brought my brother and I the last gift underneath the tree. We were told to open it together. So we begin shredding the paper. We rip open the box and glory. What do our eyes behold but two Nintendo DS eyes? <laughs> we went wild. The rest of the night was spent taking pictures of our relatives, and we had a great time. Um, and so I'm realizing that many of you may have had a Nintendo DSi. Maybe that was your treasured possession as a kid. Um, but maybe it was something else that was similar. Raise your hand if you slept with a blanket or a blankie as a child. Aww. Hey, now if you still sleep with it, keep that hand raised. Abby Hinton, I see you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but yes, aw, yes. Well, my Nintendo DSi is something that I treasured as a kid that today seems pretty trivial. 
But even today, there are things that I treasure and I hold on tightly to. My friends are some people that I hold on tightly to. They are some of the best. And now, as I live in different cities and across the country, I treasure the time that I get with them. I treasure the time that I get with these two grandmothers I mention as they continue to age. I treasure my work here and the time I get to spend with each one of you. And the list goes on. And these are good things, but if I'm honest, they can quickly compete for God's space in my heart. If I'm honest, they can quickly become how I begin to measure how I am doing. Am I a good daughter? Have I been a faithful and trustworthy friend? Am I a good coworker that's reliable and people can trust? Am I a good um, granddaughter? And so as these things become, they, not, they stop being just who, what I love or who I love. They start to become who I am. And I can easily see these, my life shift from being about God to these things. And they aren't bad things, but they start to begin to take the place of God in my life. Rather than seeing my life through the lens of Jesus, I start to see it through the things that he's given me. And I think this is a place that we all know well. We all base our lives around something and look to those things to see how we're measuring up. Maybe like me, you look to your friendships or your family relationships. But maybe you look to your grades and your academic achievements to see how you're measuring up. Maybe you think towards that dream job or grad school, and as you go along the steps, you measure how you're doing. Your life has become oriented around that. Whatever your case may be, we all know what it means to base our lives around something other than God. And that's why I love our passage tonight. It speaks to that tendency in each one of us, and it challenges us to make God our ultimate. Tonight we're going to be continuing in our series, Not Just the Beginning, a series in Genesis. Last week, Sarah preached an awesome message out of Genesis 16, and tonight we're going to jump a couple of chapters. So there's two things that you need to know. The first is that God renames Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. He does this in this this moment where he renews his covenant with Abraham. He once again says that through Abraham's offspring, he will raise up a great nation, and that nation will be a blessing to all nations. And the second thing is God says he will make this covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac, whom Sarah will bear in the next year. And at this, Abraham laughs. You see, Abraham is wondering, God, how is this going to happen? Over the past 10 chapters of Genesis, God has been promising Abraham a son. At the time when Abraham first receives this promise, he's about 75 years old. But this time when God says within a year, Sarah will give him Isaac, bear a child, he's about 100 and Sarah is about 90. Abraham has been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled for over 25 years. That's longer than many of you have been alive. Honestly, that's longer than I've been alive. And so Abraham has been waiting and waiting. And when he tells Sarah, she laughs as well. They both can't believe it. How is this going to happen? But then, chapter 21 arrives. Sarah gives birth to a son and they name him Isaac, 
Praise the Lord, God has done it. The promised child is here, the one that they have waited for, the one on whom the rest of the covenant rests. Glory, hallelujah, praise be to God. And then we get to our chapter tonight. Tonight we're going to be reading out of Genesis 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn. If you need one, there are some in the back. So Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Wait. God, what? You want me to do what? With whom? The text doesn't tell us much about what Abraham is feeling in this moment, but I imagine in the, uh, the next morning as he's chopping wood, Abraham has two big questions swirling around his head. The first is, but God, what about your promise? This promised child had come. He was the beginning of what the Lord had said would happen, and the rest of it relied on him to be there and to be alive. And so in this moment, it is strange or even contradictory for God to ask Abraham to then kill that son, that promised child. In this moment, it seems like God is asking Abraham to kill the very promise God had made to him. And the second, I imagine Abraham saying, but God, don't you know how much he means to me? Forget the promise. This is my son. Don't you know who you're asking me to sacrifice? You see, Abraham had left everything to follow God. God had called him from his country and his people and his father's household. He had gone to the land that God had shown him. God had then promised him a child, and Abraham had waited and prayed and waited some more. And then God had delivered this child. So I imagine when Isaac comes, Abraham takes a deep breath and says, Finally, I am not a fool. My community back home will know I am not a fool. The Lord has promised good things to me, and I'm starting to see them fulfilled. I also think it's hard for us to fully imagine the worth of a firstborn son in this context. In our day, adults are Um, judged based on their work, their social status, and that of their children. But in ancient times, uh, the firstborn son was everything to a man and his family. The future of that family rested upon this firstborn son. Tim Keller says that the call to give up the firstborn son would have been analogous to a surgeon giving up the use of his hands or a visual artist losing her eyes. Simply put, Isaac had become everything to Abraham and Sarah. And so the question becomes, why? Why would God do this? And the first verse of our text tonight tells us, it tells us that God is testing Abraham. But why? And why does he test him this way? 
Abraham's life had previously been dependent on God's promise to him, God's words to him. But now there was the potential for Abraham's life to shift. He now had Isaac. The center of his life could have easily become Isaac's joy and well-being. He could have looked to Isaac for significance and for security of what was to come. Isaac was the one that would take care of them as they continued to age. The center of Abraham's world could have easily been shifting. In other words, Abraham could have been on his way to make Isaac an idol. And I think it's at this very moment that we can begin to see ourselves in the story tonight. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt your life shift off of God and on to something else? Have you ever began to let a good gift from God supersede his place in your life? When we think of idols, I think we think of ancient statues and people bowing down before them. I actually just watched The Prince of Egypt for the first time with some of my friends, and there's this moment when Moses first goes to Pharaoh where, <laughs> we're getting there, um, there's a moment when Moses first goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and he lets the high, uh, Pharaoh says no and lets his priests do a little song and dance about the Egyptian gods. And honestly, it's kind of creepy, but I have a picture of it here because I think this is what we picture when we think of idols. We think of big ancient statues, and the concept feels distant. But I would argue that our society today is one that is dominated by idols. Ezekiel 14.3, in Ezekiel 14.3, God looks to the elders of Israel and he says, and he says, they have set up idols in their hearts. I imagine that the elders then said, just like us today, would say, what idols? God, I don't see any idols. You see, what God was seeing was that their hearts had shifted. He wasn't talking about a physical reality around them, but a spiritual reality within them. While there are places that still practice traditional idol worship today, internal idol worship is universal. And so what is an idol? I'm so glad that you asked. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that fills your heart and mind more than God. Anything that you seek to give what only God can give. It's that thing that you look to and in your heart of hearts you say, if I have that, my life will have meaning. If I have that, then I'll know that I have value. If I have that, then I will feel significant and secure. If anything besides God replaces that, it has become an idol. So when you look at your life, where do you find your meaning, worth, and security? Is there anything else that has become ultimate in your life other than God? You may be sitting there and thinking, how do I know if I have an idol? I want to give you a couple examples tonight. The first is, have you ever failed a test and thought, I am worthless? Or have you ever been struggling through a problem set, not being able to get the basics and think, I am never going to amount to anything? How am I ever going to provide for myself and my family? If you have thought this or something similar, you may have made an idol out of your academic performance. 
Or maybe you've thought, if I can only get into you guys, or that choir, or into the medical frat, then maybe I'll know I will be successful after college. Maybe I'll know that I have made it. Or if I can only break into that friend group in my dorm or in Chi Alpha, then I will find that value and significance I have been looking for. Maybe you've made an idol out of your social life and your friends. For others, maybe you've thought, if I can just do well in my classes and get accepted into that grad school program, then I will find the peace that I have been looking for. Or maybe you've thought, if I can look more like my hallmates and my friends and go out and do what they do, then maybe I will find value or even feel loved. There are a lot of things that can get in the way of this. Maybe the approval of others is something that you may have made an idol. You think, if I can just get all the requirements done, if I can get my shadowing done and get into med school, then maybe then my parents will be proud of me and I will know that I have done well. Or maybe you've made an idol out of romantic relationships, saying, if, I, if only someone found me desirable, then I would know that I am loved and valued. The list can go on and on. Tim Keller calls the heart a factory of idols. We have no shortage of things or people to base our lives around. And I think this only gets harder with social media because we scroll and we see people with their curated lives and their lives centered around these other things and we start to think, maybe that's what I need too. And our heart starts to run after these things instead of Jesus. When we start looking to these other things for meaning and value and security, they begin to control us. We become a slave to our schoolwork because our academic performance defines our success. We make finding a boyfriend or girlfriend the focus of our days because only then will we find significance and value. We fill our schedules with extracurriculars thinking, if I can only do more, then maybe we will find, I will find the peace that I'm looking for. There are many ways to describe that type of relationship with something, but perhaps one of the best is worship. We will spend more of our time and energy, our financial and emotional resources, pursuing that thing, our idols and what they promise us. Because without them, they feel, we feel insecure, insignificant, and we search for meaning. For me, one of the moments that I saw this most clearly in my life was spring of 2016, I was a senior in high school, and honestly, I was thriving. It was spring soccer season and the start of it, and I was a captain that year, uh, honor only reserved for seniors. We had done well the year before, and many eyes were on us and on me because I was a returning leader on the field. Academically, things were going well. I had just gotten into every college I applied to, and now it was time to make a decision. And I had already made it. It was Clemson. Relationally, I was doing well. I had great friends and family. Everything seemed to be falling into place for an awesome end to my senior year. But then March of 2016 hit. It was a Wednesday afternoon when I got a call that my aunt was in the hospital. Hours later, we found out she wasn't going to make it. Two weeks later, I lost my grandfather suddenly, someone who was so dear to me, and a spiritual mentor to me. 
We're playing in a preseason game against a pretty mo- mediocre team, losing six to nothing, the worst loss of my soccer career, when I suddenly break and sprain my ankle in one fluid motion. I spent the rest of that season on the bench in the next year recovering. And then my financial aid package come back, comes back from Clemson. I have not done enough to bridge the gap between in-state and out-of-state with my scholarships. And I realize that this dream is just out of reach. In the span of a few short weeks, the idols that I've created out of my family, soccer, and my academic achievements suddenly came crashing down. Without them, I felt broken and empty. I felt like I had nothing enduring to cling to, even though I had called myself a Christian for many years. And I share this for two reasons. The first is, I think when we think of idols, we only think of bad things. But I think more often than not, our idols are good things. And the greater the good that they are, the more easily we are tempted to make that thing the center of our world the more likely we are to think that that thing can provide all that we need and satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. My family, soccer, and my academic achievements were all good things, even great. They were great people and lovely, even honoring things. But the problem becomes when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing instead of letting God be our ultimate And the second reason is the hard thing about our idols is they seem so good, but they can't satisfy. We go back time and time again because we think that maybe this time that approval that I get will be enough. Maybe this time that need for more will be quenched. But here's the thing about idols. At some point, they will fail us. They overpromise and underdeliver every time. That's what I found that spring. My idols couldn't hold the weight of my worship. It was hard for me to see that until they were gone, but once they were, it felt like the rug had been pulled out from underneath me. Can I tell you a fun fact about Caiaphas' history? At one point, Tony Bennett stood right here where I'm standing and addressed our fellowship. It was spring of 2016 on the eve of the national championship. UVA was going in as the number one seed, and Tony had an urge to come and speak to our fellowship and encourage our ministry. And you know what he said? He said, so much seems important. It's a blessing for us to play and have a chance to advance and stuff. But you and I know it's all cotton candy. You put it in your mouth, and it tastes sweet, and then it's gone. But you and I both know that that what lasts is your relationship with the Lord. It's all cotton candy. Tony Bennett stood here and said that on the eve of what could have been the greatest season of his coaching career, at what seemed to be a great tournament run in the making. He stood here and he said that. He said it's all cotton candy. And you know why? Tony knew that making basketball an idol wouldn't be able to satisfy like God can. He knew that the joy, the promise, the hope that it would bring would eventually fail. That even a national championship, the things that it would bring and offer would be like cotton candy. It wouldn't last and it would leave us wanting more. 
And so returning to our passage tonight, God sees that Abraham is tempted to turn Isaac into an idol if he hasn't already. God is asking who would be first in Abraham's heart, God or Isaac? So what does he do? Let's keep reading in our passage tonight. Genesis 22 verse 3 says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and, and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will come back and then we will, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. I want to pause here briefly to point out a few things. The first is that in verse 3, our text tells us that Abraham got up early. He doesn't delay. He's not putting this off. He knows what he's heard from God, and he sets out to do this and be obedient quickly. The second is that Abraham says, we will worship, and then we will come back. When Isaac asks where the offering will come from, Abraham says that God will provide. Abraham acts in faith and trusts that God will provide, even though he doesn't know where it's going to come from. We see that he retains a great faith in God. And verse 6 says that Abraham himself carries the fire and the knife. He's not trying to leave the knife. He doesn't actually forget the knife. He's not trying to get out of this command. But he himself walks up the hill obediently with the knife in hand. Jumping back in Genesis, with Genesis verse 9, it says, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and, uh, he went over and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have not done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. We see that Abraham makes no delay as he gets to the top of the mountain. 
he put, he, after building the altar, he puts Isaac upon it and he gets ready to take the life of his son, his only son. But then at the last possible moment, the angel of the Lord's, Lord cries, stop, don't lay a hand on the boy. Can you imagine this moment for Abraham and Isaac? Abraham gets to lay down the knife and his son is spared. In the encounter on the mountain, God does two things for Abraham. The first is that God protects Abraham from making Isaac an idol if he hasn't made him one already. The angel says that God knows Abraham fears him because he has not withheld his son from him. In the Bible, this fear doesn't refer so much as being afraid of God as being wholeheartedly committed to him. You see, Isaac was a good gift from God, but he was starting to be a threat to Abraham being wholeheartedly committed to God. God sees this, and in his mercy, he tests Abraham by making him choose. And we see that Abraham passes There was so much potential for Abraham to turn Isaac into an idol. He had waited so long for this son. He was the boy of the promise and a miraculous gift. But still we see that Abraham chooses to put him on the altar. And it's at this moment that God knows that Abraham loves him more than anything in the world. Abraham has kept God his ultimate. And I say in his mercy, because imagine if God had not intervened. Abraham, if he wouldn't, if he, Isaac, if he wasn't already, would have become the center of Abraham's world. He would have either over-disciplined him because Isaac had to be perfect, or he would have under-disciplined him because he couldn't have dealt with Isaac's displeasure. Or maybe even both. If Isaac ever failed him, Abraham would have become overly anxious or angry or depressed because he couldn't have dealt with Isaac coming against him. And we know that Isaac would have failed him at some point because no child can hold the full weight of godhood. You see, our idol worship doesn't just hurt our relationship with the Lord. It starts to hurt our relationship with others when we look to people and place upon them the worship that's only meant for God. People cannot hold the weight of our worship. God knows that if Isaac would have felt the weight of Abraham's worship, he would have been crushed. And in the same way today, when we put our weight on other, when we put our worship on other people, the weight of it is crushing. Your best friend can't hold the weight of your worship. Your future spouse can't hold the weight of your worship. Your Christian community can't hold the weight of your worship. They were never intended to. Only God can. So God saves both Abraham and Isaac from make, by preventing Abraham from making Isaac an idol and the brokenness that would have ensued. And the second thing we see that God does on the mountain is God provides a substitute. Abraham looks up and sees the ram and offers it as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is the place in scripture where we get the name Jehovah Jireh from. The Lord will provide. You see, Abraham doesn't name the mountain based on what he's experienced there. He doesn't name it Mount Pain 
or Mount Agony or Mount Trial or Mount Never Going Back. Abraham names it, the Lord will provide because God has provided a ram to spare his only son, the one that he loves. Abraham gets to walk away with his son, Isaac, knowing that God is ultimate in his, in his heart and that Isaac is a wonderful gift. Nothing more than that, not God, but a wonderful gift. And so tonight we've walked through why this passage would have meant so much to Abraham in this moment. But what does it mean for you today? Just like Abraham, we too have Isaacs in our lives. We have people and things that we're tempted to make into an idol. We look to them and we quickly allow them to define who we are and where our worth, value, significance, and security comes from. And just as God in his mercy uh, tests Abraham to point out his idol to him, I believe that tonight God has been speaking to you and to what lies beneath the surface of your heart. Earlier I shared three phases, phrases when I introduced idols. If I have that, then my life has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. If I have that, then I will feel significant and secure. And as you sat here tonight, you know that that is not God, but that something has gotten in there and replaced him. And just like Abraham, I believe that God has the same call for each one of you tonight. He calls you to walk your Isaac up the mountain, surrendering it to him and making God your ultimate. But there's another meaning of this test that Abraham could not yet see. Back in the beginning of the series, Sarah preached on the fall. And she talked about the moment when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the apple. In this moment, in doing so, they chose to remove God from his throne and instead put themselves on the throne. They decided they could be their own authority for what good and evil was. That they knew best, better than God. And through this moment, sin enters the world. And today we do the same. We are ruled by selfishness and self-righteousness. We choose to make ourselves the authority in our lives. We move God from the throne and we put ourselves there. In other words, we make ourselves an idol and we sin. And scripture tells us that the consequence of sin is death. We deserve the consequence of our sin. But, Many years later, in the same mountains, another firstborn would be stretched out on the wood. But this time on Mount Calvary, God's son, Jesus, his one and only son, would be the one on the wood. And as he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no substitute. There was no cry from heaven, no voice that declared, Jesus, get off the cross. No, God was silent as his son was sacrificed. You see, the true substitute for Abraham's son was God's one and only son, Jesus, who died to bear our punishment. The blood of the ram offered in this passage is not enough to atone for the sins of Abraham and his family. That blood cannot cover their trespasses. In the same way, there's nothing that you and I can offer to God in order to pay for the price of our sins. But 
God sent his son to be our substitute. His son came and lived a perfect, sinless life. He then journeyed to the cross and died the death that you and I deserved for our, your sins and mine, that we might be in relationship with him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died once and for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. God offered a sacrifice to save us from the consequence of our sin and idolatry. So here then is the answer to the Isaacs in your life. And if you're wondering if God is worthy of you sacrificing them, look to the cross. In our passage, God says, Abraham, I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son from me. But how much more can we look at God's sacrifice, his one and only son on the cross, and say, God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your one and only son from me. When the magnitude of what he did dawns on us, it finally makes it possible for us to rest our hearts in him and find those things that we're looking for. Because Christ's Christ's death on the cross doesn't just pay for the sins, it also provides everything that we seek our idols to provide. The cross says that you are worthy. The cross says that you are valuable and significant. The cross says that you are loved, that you are secure, that your future is sure. Jesus alone makes sense of this story. A substitute has taken your place and mine. And so worship team, you can come back up quietly. And so as we move to close tonight, my first question is, what is your ultimate Is it God or have other things superseded his place in your life? Maybe tonight you've walked in and you've been following Jesus, but you've honestly never thought about who is first in your life. And as we've read about Abraham and Isaac tonight, you've thought maybe something has replaced him. Or maybe tonight you've been following Jesus and you find yourself worn out from the things that you have pursued that your idols that you've chased after have failed to deliver what you thought that they would. And you know that they weren't intended to. You know that God is the only one worthy of your worship. But if you're honest, you just keep going back. Can I encourage you tonight to look at the cross, to be reminded of the Lord's love for you, that he would sacrifice his son for you. And as you do so, I believe that he will give you the courage to walk in obedience and to walk your Isaacs up the mountain. Or maybe you've come in here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is the first time that you have heard that there is a God who loves you and who gave his son for you to be your substitute. Or maybe you've heard this before, but it has clicked in a new way tonight. Maybe you've tried the things of this world and ran to many Isaacs, but they've left you empty and broken like me in my senior year of high school. Can I encourage you that this God, the one who went to the cross for you and for me, is here tonight and that he wants to meet with you. There is nothing more than he desires than to be in relationship with you, for you to know that you are valued and loved and significant and secure as a child of God. 
If this is you, I wanna encourage you to find someone that you came with, to ask them about this God and to take, and to take the time to investigate who he is and what that means for your life. And my second question is, how will you respond when your idols are exposed? I think there are two different ways that we can often respond. We can first opt for bitterness and despair. We can say, God, that's too much. I don't know what my life looks without that. God, I don't know how I'm supposed to go on without searching for that approval. Or that person means too much to me, God. I can't break up with them. I can't look away from them to look at you. We can cling to our idols and the security that they seem to promise. We can tell God, no, it means too much. It's too scary. Or the second option is like Abraham, we can take a walk up the mountain. We can look to God and say, I don't know what it looks like to live without this person or thing as first in my heart, but I know that if I have you, I have all the value, significance, security, and love I will ever need. For some of you, this may mean surrendering something to God on the altar and walking away in obedience. For others, it may mean that he gives it right back to you but now with it in your heart in the right place, just as he did with Abraham and Isaac. My last encouragement tonight is that there is nothing else that can hold the weight of your worship and satisfy like God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Only by looking to his sacrifice can we surrender our hearts and make God our ultimate, trusting that he will always satisfy. So tonight, as the worship team begins to play, I want to encourage you to take a moment and meet with God. Maybe for some of you, this means taking that metaphorical walk up the mountain. I encourage you that he's here tonight and he wants to meet with you. And the beautiful thing is that you don't have to do this alone. God gave us the ability to do this in community. So if you need to grab a core group leader or a friend in your row with you to pray with you, you can do so. And as you're ready, you can join us to stand and sing. Yes, God, this is our prayer tonight. We say, God, be our everything. God, we thank you that you are a God who satisfies. Lord, that as we look to the cross, we can know that you love us. God, because you gave your one and only son. And we can know that through the cross, the things that we crave, the deepest desires and longing of our hearts are fulfilled. So Lord, this week, I pray that we would look to you first. God, that you would be our everything. God, that we would find our delight and our joy, our security and significance, our value and worth in you. So God, I pray that we would follow in Abraham's footsteps this week. God, that we would make you our ultimate, knowing that you are so worthy of our worship, Lord, and that you are so trustworthy as we entrust our hearts and our lives to you. Amen. And now for the benediction. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he 
give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.